Local governments are often under fire for inappropriate spending, from stadiums and wastewater plants to festivals and sports events. Now the government is pushing through legislation that will try to curb the cost to ratepayers by refocusing councils on core services. This Radio New Zealand Insight programme asks what a core service is and what will change. The World of Wearable Arts held in Wellington earlier this month pumped $15 million into the capital over the course of 10 days. The event received a grant from the council and while the figures said to be commercially sensitive, it's thought to be in the six figures. But is WOW a core service? So are we ready to be the middle of Middle Earth? Are we ready? We're ready. Okay. Ten, nine. Equally, next month's world premiere of The Hobbit film will bring a boost to the capital's economy. It's getting $1.1 million in council funding, and Wellington's Mayor Celia Wade-Brown thinks it's money well spent. The city contribution to the premiere, to making it easy to film here, is absolutely worthwhile. And it's the economic well-being, but it's also the buzz and the fun and the excitement of living in a city where The Hobbit's made. I'm Kushla Norman and this insight considers what the government's local council reforms are likely to achieve. Myself, I'm a farmer with two farm properties. My rate bill's probably closer to $30,000 a year. I don't believe I get $30,000 worth of use uh, of service from councils. But listen, I accept that that's the rates that I pay. I don't argue about it. I pay it. Uh, Most ratepayers do but it's a lot of money that I pay every year to pay my rates to two councils. The Minister for Local Government, David Carter, a sizeable ratepayer himself, wants to stop rates bills from escalating the way they have over the past decade. Rates have been rising by 7% a year on average, more than double the rate of inflation, while council debt has quadrupled to $8 billion. A combination of spending on infrastructure and non-core projects have driven the increase. Now Mr Carter plans to scrap the legislation which gave councils more rein to spend on economic, environmental, social and cultural activity, or the four well-beings. It will instead narrow their focus to funding just core services. And as I've moved around the country talking to councillors, many of them have said it is difficult for them to say no to some of the proposals put to them by ratepayers simply because of the broadness of those four well-beings. But as he prepared to fly out of Wellington, the president of local government New Zealand, Lawrence Yule, says removing the four well-beings appears to change very little about what local authorities can and can't pay for. Up until now, the government has been unable to tell me anything that we're not able to fund, which leads me to the point, so why change what we've got now? And those close to the helm of the country's largest local authority are puzzled too. Outside the Auckland Town Hall, the city's deputy mayor, Penny House, says the government's process is odd. At the local government conference in Queenstown, all representatives from all of the councils throughout New Zealand voted unanimously to tell the minister not to remove the, the four well-beings from the statement of purpose. The minister then assured everyone that nothing was going to change and that we would continue to do what we do. Um, However, the big question arises, so why go through this reform process? Lawrence Yule says communities want councils to fund extras, and if they don't like it, then they can vote councillors out. We do things in our communities because our communities want us to. Uh, We charge our communities for it. 
Every three years we get voted in or out on that basis. Completely transparent process. And many of the things we end up doing that might be considered by central government on the fringes are because they've failed to do them. Uh, and a classic I give in Hastings is that we you know, installed and spent $300,000 on closed-circuit TV um, security for the centre of the CBD. The next week I had the area com police commander coming and telling me he was taking two, you know, um, two police officers off the beat. That is a classic case of where the costs have been shifted. Actually, should it be a policing issue? In our view, they weren't, that, that was failing, so we did something about it. Or some other things that have been captured by the media would indicate that you know, a, a picture theatre in a small rural community. Why should the council own a picture theatre in a small rural community? The simple reason is that the small community want a picture theatre. It doesn't work viably, uh, commercially. If the community wanted it, what right has the government to say they can't have it? So what is a core service and who decides? David Carter says it is still the domain of local councils to determine what activities they can fund. Economic development is one that comes up a lot. I think there is a role for local government to undertake economic development within their regions. It's contributing to creation of jobs and that's contributing to the well-being of that community. But it's for councils to determine those activities, not for central government. So you're saying, well, as long as you can afford it? As long as you've done a cost-benefit analysis of the activity, as long as you are comfortable as councillors making the decision that it will be returning benefits that exceed the cost to the community, then councils have that guidance when making those decisions. So will altering the purpose of local councils have any real impact on how they operate and what they fund? The Labour Party's local government spokesperson, Annette King, calls the reforms an exercise in futility and a political stunt. She says having no definition of core services is causing confusion and councils are likely to carry on as they have been. Such a lack of definition as to what they are, are able to do um, that they, I think they will continue doing what they're doing. They will have more, some more accountabilities. That is fine. Um, but they'll also have more confusion. And when we've asked what public services are, well, it's anything that only the local government can do. Well, anyone could run fireworks.com. He paid for fireworks, so you don't have to have local government do that. Anyone could run a yacht race. You don't have to have local government in that, or V8s. So once again, you're confused. Are they in? Are they out? Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, here we are finally. The last race of the ITM 400 here in Hamilton. The Australian V8 supercar race in Hamilton, which lost that council $37 million, has been held up by David Carter as something councils shouldn't be spending money on. Yet the government's given its blessing to Auckland now hosting the event and is contributing $2.2 million to upgrading the racetrack. Auckland's Penny Hulse says it's yet another indication that not too much will change in the way councils operate. Controversial as it is, the government are very keen to see it go ahead and they see council as the sort of the vector to make these things happen. Exactly the same as Rugby World Cup. You know, these are big events that the councils need to partner with government in. They provide for economic development and well-being and these are the very things that the government's questioning our role in. Penny Hulse says the biggest risk the reforms pose to councils is the potential for litigation. The concern that I have is not necessarily the detail, but the opportunity to raise expectations in the eyes of the community that they can then challenge 
anything that local government does. They can challenge it legally, and we certainly have some expert legal advice that this could end up costing ratepayers hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal action. Annette King sat on the Select Committee hearing into the reforms and says there were plenty of warnings the changes could open up more legal wrangling. So lawyers can be rubbing their hands together because you only take one or two people in a local authority area to say, that's not a public service, we're going to lay a complaint against that. We want to know whether legally they can carry out that because we don't think it fits public service. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if with these changes that someone doesn't challenge the V8s, which the government said they can do, but you only have to have some ratepayer say, no, no, that's not a public service. That's, that's something that anyone could do. Why don't the motor industry do that? So you can see we, what we're going to get ourselves into is a legal tangle, a waste of money and a waste of time when it's unnecessary for these changes to be taking place. And the director of the local government centre at Auckland University, Peter McKinley, envisions more court action as well. The way the section is worded may actually compel councils to put services in place that they wouldn't otherwise put in place. I mean, there are a number of councils, for example, which do not provide reticulated water and sewage services to all of their communities. Rural councils are a case in point. There's a worry that new legislation might see people taking them to court and saying they are now compelled to provide those services. So putting added pressure on councils? Yeah. In a way. Yeah. Amalgamations are another part of the reforms which the government is encouraging councils to consider. It says merging several local authorities together saves money because services are shared and points to the creation of the Auckland Super City, which helped shed 2,000 staff and save $140 million. There are 78 councils in New Zealand and the merger debate has been running hot, none more so than in the Wellington region, where nine councils represent almost half a million people. However, as the councils survey their communities as to what type of amalgamation they want, it's already clear the three wided upper councils don't want to be sucked into a Wellington super city. Instead, the people there would prefer the South Wided Upper, Carterton and Masterton district councils to join as one. I'm on the main street of Masterton in the Wided Upper, with its plentiful farms and vineyards. Its focus is more on agricultural output, a vastly different economy to public sector-dominated Wellington next door. And it's why the Wided Upper Chamber of Commerce Chief Executive Stephanie Gunderson-Reed says a super city wouldn't be the right fit for her region. We want a close relationship with them, definitely, because they are a very important market to us both in tourism and business, and we have a lot of people that live in the Wairapa and work in Wellington. So I think it's important we still have a relationship with them, but I think a lot of Wairapa people would be disappointed to see our mayor sitting in Wellington City. She says the two economies are vastly different. The issues that we have over here are very different to the city. People don't necessarily in Wellington understand things like flood issues and we're very focused on primary and farming, etc. for our GDP. I suppose because of my experience and particularly our last job as the CEO of Brisbane City Council, I've become known in Australia for my depth of experience in local government and reflecting on 
how it would best be organised. Jude Munro has worked for four councils across three Australian states and was recently in Wellington to share her thoughts on local government reorganisation. The Brisbane Council, where she was chief executive, is a single-tier unitary authority with one mayor and 26 ward councillors, supporting a population of 1.2 million. As she visited the city council, she explained the Brisbane model is one she favours because it doesn't have too many layers. It's a simple form of government. It's very clear to everyone who they go to for things. Um, and it's also effective. Um, decisions are made very quickly and it's also responsive and involves the community through appropriate consultation with the community and other ways of participating. Currently, amalgamations can only go ahead if they have 50% or more support from people living in an affected area. But the new reforms would make it easier for councils to amalgamate by making it more difficult to oppose such a move. In order to force a poll on rolling together local authorities, 10% of those living in the new council area would have to sign a petition. Annette King says it's an assault on democratic rights and could open the door to forced amalgamations. This is why many of the provincial and smaller councils in rural New Zealand are very worried that big councils, if they decide to put up a proposal, and anyone can put up a proposal for amalgamation under these changes, that they, they could easily be lost. And they came along to the select committee and they have said, we are efficient, we, we have held rates, we've invested in infrastructure, and we work together. Why do you want to change us? So this change to petition before you could even have a poll under the changes is very anti-democratic. David Carter says 78 councils for nearly 4.5 million people is too many, but he won't put a figure on what would be a good number. He is promising, though, that there will be no forced amalgamations. We want local communities to have that debate, to engage amongst themselves to find out where the boundaries should be to deliver the most efficient local government for them. The legislation facilitates that debate to happen and for a result to occur more easily than under the current rules. However, academic Peter McKinley says amalgamations do more harm than good. Especially once you've got past the kind of wave we went through in 1989 where we did have a number of tiddlers that needed to disappear. But we've really done that clean-up. There are more subtle issues about what kinds of activities need to be controlled at what level. So in Wellington, there are some tough questions about integrated land use and transport planning and other significant region-wide issues. But that's very different from local service delivery, and it's very different, again, from how you get good governance for Wellington's communities. And the people of Arrow Valley are very different from the people of Karori, who are very different from the people out in Peter Jackson land and on the Miramar and Setun Peninsula. Um, they have very different interests, and those need to be recognised in our governance processes as well. While some people think the government's gone too far with its reforms, others believe it hasn't gone far enough. We did a report a few years ago on the state of urban regeneration policies in Britain. And actually it was a series of three reports and they were actually quite controversial at the time. Cities limited success... In the Oliver Hartwich is the executive director of the right-wing think tank, the New Zealand Initiative. He advised the current British Prime Minister, David Cameron, when he was in opposition. And since then, some of his ideas, including reforms to strengthen community involvement in town planning, have been adopted by Cameron's government. 
He wants a complete shake-up of New Zealand's local government system, and says councils should be given more money and responsibility. One of the reasons why people complain about um, the inadequacy of local government is because we don't trust the locals enough. We don't trust them enough, we don't give them enough resources, we don't really give them the autonomy that they need. And then afterwards, when they're producing a job that nobody likes, then we complain. Actually, I think it should be the other way around. First, we have to trust them, then we have to give them the resources, we have to give them a clear-cut mandate, what we really want from them, and then let them work it out. But you cannot just staff them of cash and afterwards complain that they're delivering poor services. I think we have to find a completely different model of local government. We have to have a complete rethink of the functions of different tiers of government. Oliver Hart, which would redistribute income tax, so more stays on the ground to support local councils, as happens in his home nation, Germany, and Switzerland. He says this would serve as an incentive for councils to develop their areas and encourage competition between local authorities. They actually try to win more inhabitants. They try to make their lives easier and better. They try to give you planning permissions and building permissions faster because they want to keep you. They see you as a customer. And that's pretty much what I would like to see. I want local government to treat the existing population pretty much as a customer and compete for them. Isn't this treading on central government's toes a little bit? Oh, not just a little bit. Completely. Um, I actually think we have to take some decisions away from central government and localise it. We actually have to trust the locals to run their own affairs because they're usually better at it, believe it or not, because they know what they want. So what responsibilities would Oliver Hartwich give local government? Education? Why not? Um, get them involved in that. Police is uh, perhaps one of the areas in which local government could actually play a role. There are countries around the world where you have locally elected police officers or police presidents. Why not? Um, because that would actually give communities a greater say in how they want these uh, services to be performed. However, Oliver Hartwich's proposals don't inspire the local government minister to take the reforms further. David Carter thinks the government's found about the right balance. When you put through something major like this local government report, reform, we've got a number of people saying we've gone too far, we're removing local democracy, we've got a, a similar number of people saying we're not going far enough, we're not reigning in local councils. I think when you balance it up, we're probably in about the space we need to be recognising there is a role for local government. It is another democracy where democracy is meant to work for the benefits of their community, but acknowledging that because of the extent of rate increases over the last decade, something had to be done. At the moment, households are spending on average about $1,900 a year on rates. Local government's Lawrence Yule thinks that's good value for money. Every household in New Zealand, on average, spends $6 a day as what they give their local authority in rates. Think of how many people spend more than that on coffee, a day. Most people's electricity bills are far in excess of their rates bills. Most people's combined telephone and cell phone bills are now in excess of their rate bills. So if we're not careful, we're going to lose the value proposition of what's delivered by our local authorities. And, and in our communities and the communities we represent, yes, there is a tension about rate increases, but equally, people want good basic infrastructure, roads, footpaths, water, sewerage, all those things. They want the toilet to flush when they, when they use it. All those things are fundamental to them. And um, I, I think there's a real tension in here that um, the local government is being undervalued for what it delivers uh, for communities. It's not as sexy as the latest iPhone or something, but it is fundamentally important to the success of New Zealand. So will the reforms make any material difference to your bill? Academic Peter McKinley doesn't think they're going to get any lower. 
First, because most councils, as far as I'm aware, and I look fairly closely, do actually work quite hard to try and keep rates down. There are issues that need to be addressed, but they're not issues of councillors spending recklessly or not making reasonably considered judgments most of the time. And the pressures for expenditure continue. If you know, you look at, at roading generally, look at issues of stormwater, look at the quality of the environment, there's huge public pressure to do more and to do it better, and that costs money. The formation of the Auckland Super City was touted by the local government minister of the day, Rodney Hyde, as a way to keep rates down. But the city's deputy mayor, Penny Hulse, says an awful lot of nonsense is talked about reforms lowering rates, when really it's not that easy. In reality, the transition was an exceedingly expensive process and we've had to work very, very hard to keep rates at a reasonable rate. I think local government reforms come and go, rates will remain. We need to cover the costs sensibly of what it takes to run our cities and every single councillor around the country is driven every day to do that in the most sensible way they can. But David Carter is hoping the reforms will bring about a culture change to the way councils view spending, although it may not have an immediate effect on rates bills. I would hope it doesn't take too long. As I move around the country talking to ratepayers, the level of angst, the level of consternation amongst ratepayers generally is very high. And I think councillors need to be aware of that as they start setting rates from now on. He also believes councils need to be more transparent with their communities about why rates are rising and what the money will be spent on. Being upfront about rates rises worked wonders in Brisbane. Jude Munro says the mayor at the time secured a rates increase because he was clear about wanting it to transform the river area into a place that would attract investment. They've cleaned up the river, There's, uh, the city cats use the river, values have gone up along the river. That area that was the urban renewal areas had $4.3 billion what, what worth of investment. What does urban renewal mean? Oh, these were the Coca-Cola site, a cement factory, they were all there. Uh, they were relocated to other parts of Brisbane. That area became what was called a brownfield site, so a lot of run-down places as well as existing businesses very run down. It's now a commercial hub and a residential hub on the inner city of Brisbane. And everyone who comes here says, wow, this is fantastic, the transformation that has happened. Central government intervention in councils is also covered in the legislation. The government already has the powers to sack councils and appoint commissioners, as has been the case for the beleaguered Canterbury Regional and Kaipara District Councils. In 2010, the regional councils at ECAN were removed and replaced by commissioners following a critical report on the council's management of fresh water. And earlier this year, commissioners took control of the heavily indebted Kaipara District Council after a wastewater scheme blew out by more than $50 million. A government review team found the financial challenges were more than the councillors could handle. The government says the focus of those interventions has been on crises and it's proposing simpler mechanisms to help struggling councils before they get to that point. It's proposing six powers to assist or intervene, ranging from a request for information to calling an early election in extreme circumstances. Last month, the government announced it would be suspending elections for the Canterbury Regional Council until 2016, saying the commissioners had provided strong governance following the earthquakes, and it was vital that continues. 
That, along with proposed school closures, sparked large protests on the streets of Christchurch. The thing that's triggered it is a feeling across all our political parties, it doesn't matter who you vote for, there's a feeling that the government has really pushed too hard on the communities here. A Canterbury University political scientist, Bronwyn Hayward, organised that protest. She says the feeling among ratepayers is that they and the councils that represent them have been sidelined from decision-making. Dr Hayward says the government's attacking councils with its reforms and that could cause division. It's a shambles really, but at the centre of it we've seen a command and control model of central government decision making coming into a local area in a, I would say, really mistaken way, but it's what we call the, um, the FEMA model, where you bring in a central government department who then and authority who then makes decisions for the community. But the trouble is, in doing that, they dislocate the community and break up traditional lines of communication and decision-making. So local governments aren't great, but they, what they're particularly good at is, is responding and listening to a local community. When you bring in a lot of new people, establish new lines of communication after disaster, you're actually creating more chaos rather than helping the situation. It's counterintuitive because, of course, we needed the support of Sarah. But the argument is, imagine what would happen if we had brought all that Wellington knowledge and the new skills and actually put them beside our city council, beside ECAN, to coach and help those established bodies get through a disaster. We would be seeing a very different play now. We would be seeing a community that is starting to move towards recovery. Along with the legislation making its way through Parliament, a separate task force is looking into the time and money councils spend on planning, consultation and reporting. The government says the local government sector is concerned about the resources spent on such processes and the task force will investigate whether they can be done in a simpler way. Their report's due in the next few weeks, about the same time the Select Committee report on the reforms is due. If all goes according to the government's plan, the legislation will be passed into law by the end of the year. I'm Kushla Norman and that's Insight for this week. If you would like to contact us, you can send an email to insight at radionz.co.nz or tweet us at rnz underscore insight. I wrote and presented that programme. It was produced by Philippa Tolley with technical production by Jeremy Veal.